0: The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair, Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. So,
1: uh, we considered inviting John the Baptist to be a guest uh, preacher here at Genesis, but then we thought uh, that he would be, um, you know, fired, he would be, uh, there's a reason why he ends up in the, in the wilderness, I think, and it's because no one else will have him. He, his message, no matter how you slice it and dice it, is rough. Amen? Amen. John the Baptist is probably not a guy you want to hang out with for very for very long. And so uh, when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, uh, the Greek word metaneo means change your mind, reconsider how you're living. The Hebrew word for, re- for repent is teshuva, and it means return, uh, because sin in the Hebrew, hate means to sort of miss the mark or wander away. Uh, Repenting or returning is about turning around and coming back home. And so, but when you hear the words repent and return, let's let's do an all play. If you're new here, all plays are designed to hear the voice of you all, not just me. Um, How do you hear those words? Repent, return. How do you understand them? What do they mean? (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Sean. You're doing something wrong. Stop it. What else? Turning full, 180. full 180. Turning around from where you're going and going somewhere else the opposite direction. Thanks, Kelsey. All right, thanks, Janie. So repenting feels maybe like feeling stuck. Returning or turning around feels like getting unstuck and moving. Thank you. I feel like it's like giving up the facade. Oh, okay, well, that's cool. Giving up the facade. Stopping pretending. Yeah. I like that. Um, I thought about this kind of a lot, and I think, I wonder if for many of us, Um, some of us fall into the camp of, like, repenting and returning. Maybe in 2020, almost, it's a concept that we can mostly ignore as long as we have a robust love-wins theology, right? I think some of us fall in that category, nervous chuckles. Um, And then maybe some of us fall into the category repenting and returning as kind of like a reminder to try hard to be more like Jesus, right? I mean, that's a good thing. Or maybe for some of us, it's sort of more of a a therapeutic, you know, I'm working on my shadow side uh, sort of (laughs) sentiment, (laughs) and the Enneagram is really helping me do that, and I'd like you to work on your shadow side too. Um, And I wonder if there's some truth to all those perhaps, but I also wonder if all of them miss the mark in a certain way. I wonder what this text might help us to see um, something else. And there's two clues in this scripture portion. The first clue is when we read about John's wonderful apparel, the camel's hair and leather belt. And then the second one is the Jordan River. So um, I'm going to grab my Bible here. In Malachi or Malachi, Malachi, uh, Verses, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, we read something about, um, we read something that'll, that'll give us a clue uh, as to what's going on. Lo is the last couple of verses in the Hebrew Scriptures. You turn the page and 400 years later, you have Matthew, but um, this is the last, last couple of verses in the whole Hebrew Scriptures. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn, same word, shuv or teshuvah, the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. And um, we read in 2 Kings 1 uh, this funky story about um, this king who fell through his roof and was injured and then he sent his servants out to go inquire of Baal uh, Zarubel, which means the lord of the stinging fly, whether or not he, will, he would die. At the same time, apparently, the God of Israel spoke to Elijah and said, go and meet these messengers and tell them to tell that king uh, that um, basically, so you went to the king of the stinging fly because you, you assume there is no God in Israel anymore. Therefore, you will die. That's what Elijah was supposed to tell to the messengers, and that is what he told them. So he came back. The messengers came back, told the king. The king said, why are you back so soon? And they said, "Well, we ran into this guy who said that because that you're asking this Lord of the Steam Fly, not the God of Israel, that you're going to die." And the king's the king said, "What did the guy look like?" And they said, "Well, he wore camel's hair and leather belt." So the reason why we read in Matthew's Gospel that. John is wearing camel's hair and a leather belt is because that is a big clue that the people are waiting for Elijah to come because Elijah is going to be a precursor to the Messiah. So it's like it's like the old end times kind of stuff. Elijah's here. That means good news is coming. And so that's part of what we're supposed to read. But then when John comes, it's all this repent and return language and um, and even this language of we'll turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, I had to think about this one for a while this week. But what is the state of the world when the hearts of parents need to be turned back to the hearts of their children? What does that mean about the state of the world, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's like if the very fundamental relationship, parent to kid, needs to be turned and made right, then what can we assume about the rest of the world? It's a dark place. So question, um, and this is an all play, what has the power to turn a heart? And try to get like as, as real as possible. You, you, can't, you can't just say Jesus, okay? What has the power to turn a heart? Thank you, Lisa. Pain and suffering. I agree. Hitting rock bottom. Hitting rock bottom. Thank you, Nick. Nature. Nature. Say more. Oh, my gosh, man. There's just, there's beauty in nature. Yes. It, yes. Yes. Yes, seeing something that's more beautiful than you can change you. I totally agree. Conversation. Conversation. Thanks, Kristen. Space. Space. Yes. Community. Community. Yes. Time. Time. Thanks, Kara. Anything else? Children. Children. Wow, say more, Jenny. Unless you don't want to. Hmm. They bring out the best in you and teach you the most. Kids. Yeah, kids make you consider the things that you believe and whether they're worth believing. to be more like Christ yeah, when, you're, when you're around your kids and you're selfless. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think back to our three understandings of what repenting returning might be, I think um, a concept that we can mostly ignore because of a robust theology that love wins misses the mark, I think. Um, sin management misses the mark, but ignoring sin... Misses the mark, too. Um, trying hard to be more like Jesus is better than sin management, I think. But it probably results in people who are insufferably self-righteous. Because <laughs> they they want you to be like them. Because you're more, are like you, because you're more like Jesus. And then working on your shadow side, critical. Critical. Um, but mine end up being overly self-referential at the end of the day, if that's all you do. So in Richard Rohr's Preparing for Christmas, there's this little Advent booklet, Daily Meditations for Advent. Um, The reading for Thursday, the second week of Advent, so just a few days ago, included these lines. Without great love and or great suffering, human consciousness remains largely at the fight or flight, either or, all or nothing level. It's largely great love and great suffering that creates spiritual listening and larger seeing. So this last week, I, was, I dropped Isaac off for school, and I was just noticing even, and we were just listening to music, and we weren't saying much, but my, oh, my emotions were just really right at, right at the surface, and I was fighting back tears, and I didn't even know why. So I pulled up, dropped him off, and then went around the corner and stopped my car and just wept. And um, I I have some clue about what that's about, and also it really surprised me that that was there. And what I found myself saying, um, without even really thinking about it, it was like reflexive, was just, God, I need your help. I need your help. I need you to come. And I got in touch with the, a depth of longing that I hadn't mentioned to God in a long time, I think. Because I think there is, you know, there, I without knowing it, my wandering away um, looks like just putting on a backpack, uh, putting on one more brick, and just trudging along and doing it. Just getting it done, no matter how hard it is. No matter what it is. And I wonder um, what invitation, and I'm considering this, that God has for me these days. And I think, Nick, you said rock bottom, um, Have you ever experienced a rock bottom moment where you've said to yourself, This, whatever this is, this has to stop. But you simultaneously realize that you can't stop it, no matter what it is? All play. What is that moment? Ooh, Will just nailed it. The dread of getting together with family members who you despise and who despise you over the holidays. Whew. What is that moment where you realize that this has to stop, but you can't stop it? Surrender. Mm. Is that John back there? Surrender. I read this somewhere this week. I think it's Meister Eckhart, 14th century theologian, German. He said, the gr- truly great spirituality is not about addition. It's about subtraction. It's about letting go. And there's a cheesy kind of letting go and letting God, you know what I mean? by like that? Where you're not really naming anything. You're just sort of like saying, ah, I don't want to deal with it. And then there's another form of it that's really, truly doing deep spiritual work of hitting rock bottom and saying, I can no longer manage this anymore. And I wonder if that's part of what repenting and returning really means. The second clue, in addition to the camel hair and the leather belt, is the Jordan River, the presence of the Jordan River in this scripture portion. It's 156 mile long river that flows north to south from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And when biblical characters find themselves at the Jordan, what's happening so often is they're facing a major transition in their life. We meet it first in Genesis 13 when Abram and Lot have become so wealthy, both of them, that one piece of land can't hold them. So they have to separate. I mean, ming. <laughs> Talk about probably a warning sign flashing on the lights of like, if two people are too wealthy, maybe think of some other solutions other than just dividing. Maybe there's some maybe there's a different way, but they're standing at the plain of the Jordan and Lot looks at the the plain and it's lush and green. And in the scriptures, it says, it looked like the Garden of Eden, comma, like Egypt. Now, this is, you know, graduate level Hebrew question here. But what does it mean in the scriptures when something is referred to as looking like the Garden of Eden and like Egypt? Something so good it can put you in bondage. Have you ever gotten like a false comfort, a chameleon comfort? Something that looks like, yes, something that will get me out of this pain right now. I'm taking it. Looks good. Maybe there's a little centimeter of your heart that knows it's not the right thing, but it looks so good and you're taking it. So Lot took that. In Joshua 3, Joshua is going to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the promised land. Joshua is the new leader after Moses. Can you imagine following Moses as a leader? Good luck. I wonder what had to die in him over time so that he could just be him. When he crosses the Jordan, it's a major identity crossing. And then 2 Kings 2, Elijah and Elisha cross the Jordan. And Elijah is about to go somehow up to heaven because his life is, hes like, he doesn't die. He just gets taken up to heaven somehow. And Elisha, his disciple, stays. And he asks Elijah, he goes, I would like to ask you for a double portion of the blessing that you got. (laughs) I want twice as much. And Elijah says, very Yoda. What you have asked for is a very hard thing, but I will try, and if it happens, the blessing, it happens, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Boom. Now, if I'm Elisha right there, I'm taking it all back. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 a quarter of blessing is totally fine, totally fine. I don't need the double, just, I don't even need the same. I, I don't even need half. Just like a quarter, and I think I can do it. I think I can do it on a quarter. Just don't, don't say that if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Because I don't want the, the, the it doesn't happen thing. That's not, that's not okay with me. But he doesn't say that. Because he's about to pick up this mantle of leadership, and he knows he can't really do it. Just like Joshua knew he couldn't really do it. In Matthew 3, in the verses right after this lectionary passage, Jesus will be baptized and anointed in the Jordan. He's not crossing the Jordan. he's going to be submerged in the Jordan. and he's going to come up. and he's going to be anointed for his ministry, which is the ministry of what? The ministry of Jesus. Come on, you guys are the church. You've been going to church your whole life. Can't even answer what the ministry of Jesus is? Salvation. Salvation. Jenny, good job. <laughs> There's just so much more, Jenny, and I know you know it. That's why I gave you that good job. I know, Jenny. What's the ministry of Jesus? Redemption, Redemption by. Suffering. You said it, Lisa, great suffering. How come Jesus could be filled with such love? Yes, he was God. Yes, he was divine. But also he showed us that the only way across the Jordan in our own lives, whatever transition we're facing, is we have to have someone that is God-sized, that suffers with us, or else we will not make it. That's what Emmanuel shows us. That no try-hard repentance will work. No working on my shadow side returning will work. No trying hard to be like Jesus will work. And no ignoring sin will work. Richard Rohr writes this, For all of us, whether addicted to alcohol or something else, unless there's a person, situation, event, idea, conflict, or relationship that you can't manage, you'll never find the true manager. God or life ensures you have numerous opportunities to encounter your powerlessness. Self-made people and all heroic spiritualities will try to manufacture an even stronger self by willpower and determination, to put them back in charge and seemingly in control. Whew. This pushy response <laughs> doesn't normally create loving people, rather, it produces people in ever deeper need of control. Eventually, the game is unsustainable. As English poet W.H. W. Auden put it in Apropos of Many Things, the poem, we would rather be ruined than changed. <laughs> We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the present and let our illusions die. Sure. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the present and let our illusions die. The ministry of Jesus is salvation. But it has to come through our ruin. And not our ruin in a way that ruins us, but in a way where we understand I can't. I can no longer manage this. I can no longer control this. I can no longer put up the facade. Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, I can't pretend anymore? (laughs) Have you ever been there? That's actually a gift, but it feels terrible because you're going to disappoint a ton of people. So whatever your it is that you're working on, how are you doing? I'm working on some stuff. What does repentance look like for you? I'm working on it, working on it. Whatever your it is, I'm working on it as a posture of managing it, which is a very different posture than I can't fix it, I can't control it, I can't cure it, and I can no longer manage it, and now I realize I never really could in the first place. And when you're there, then you can start to turn around and head in a different direction. As one of my friends, who's a 12-stepper, said to me when she was giving me some advice the other day, she goes, listen, your best thinking got you into this. It's not going to get you out of it. And I was like, I hate you. (laughs) But I was also like, oh, that smells like freedom. During Advent, we name the dark places in our lives that seem hopeless, and we wait for Christ to arrive, right? But we want Christ, even Christ, we want Christ to arrive like a hero who will obliterate the darkness and make sure that we suffer no longer. But when he does arrive... He suffers and dies with us. And it's that act of love, when you let it in all the way, that turns our hearts and makes us ready to repent and return, not with willpower, but with, John said it, surrender. Repent and return is hitting a kind of rock bottom where you realize, I can't save myself and we're all good, we have all great theology Christians in this room. It's like we know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of our works, you know, that we could, but, but we, we keep, we, we try so hard um, to not really accept the grace that the Christ of Advent is born into this world, suffers with us, dies with us, and then rises with us. And when we rise in that way after being that powerless, we are given a kind of power that's utterly um, unstoppable. But it doesn't, be, doesn't come because you are so great <laughs> or you have it nailed or you've conquered it. You've managed it well. It comes because you realize whew, the beautiful, powerful Redemptive words, I can't. And now you're dangerous in a good way. Amen. So this Advent season, my prayer for me and for you is that we would learn the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 39. That when he says, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. My prayer is that we actually, we actually discover the freedom of what Jesus really meant and what he's offering us. In again, Amen.
0: Endings are a place where life is real.